Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, how often would you say you think about the concept of beauty? The concept of beauty, probably only when I'm in the studio. Yeah. (laughs) But I think about my foundation and my concealer and my hair products and body image and how my pants are fitting probably all the time. Yeah, I definitely have these certain moments. And I want to know if, if you experience this as well. When I'm, I'm getting dressed and it turns into this massive tailspin because I'm trying to put something on and nothing is looking good mm-hmm. and then something with my hair is not working mm-hmm. and then I'm slathering my face in all this makeup and I stop and I think, why? What, why am I doing all of this? I'm, I'm spending all of this time and energy mm-hmm. and anxiety. You could be sleeping so much later. I could be sleeping, I could be reading, I could be ruling the world. I could be writing, I could be running for president. (laughs) But instead, I'm looking for, you know, the right button down. And we talk so much about um, body image and how women are regarded in the world and feminism and all this stuff. And every now and then, I wonder if it's all just at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's like, well... Well, we shouldn't care about these things. Right. A lot of people do have the argument that if you are a true feminist, Mm -hmm. Kristen, you would not worry about that stuff, but would instead worry about your impact on the world. But then it's like, no, it's it's good to have, uh, you know, ownership in in what we look like and how we present ourselves. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then on top of all this, I think about the idea of. Growing up now, if I were a tween or a young teen today, 
having grown up with social media Ugh. and the constant <laughs> public presentation right. and having to manage all of that while going through that whole who am I phase and, you know, kind of trying on different outfits, both literally and figuratively and how different the idea of beauty might be for for girls of the next generation of the selfie generation yeah. you might say yeah um so i felt very lucky that we were able to have a conversation with autumn whitefield madrano who is the author of the blog the beheld which is cross posted over at the new inquiry because she is a fantastic writer, first of all, but she has so much insight into beauty. She's been blogging about beauty, and not just in the sense of, hey, girl, this new makeup's out. You should try it. Uh, but beauty from a more scholarly sense. And I ran across her blog, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, and I can't get enough of it because it's so insightful. And I feel like she, all of these questions that I've had about beauty as a woman She's already thought about and written something very wise about. Well, yeah, she she admits right off that, uh, you know, her friends basically said you, you've either got to cut all this out completely or you've got to start writing about it more. And yeah. she has really thought long and hard about a lot of these concepts that a lot of us women kind of have to wrestle with. You know, she talks about the issues of beauty versus feminism or beauty within feminism or feminism within beauty and how, you know, our beauty products don't necessarily enhance our our fight for equality in the workplace, for instance, but they don't work against it. Right. And uh, it was funny because I a, a few months ago or a little while ago, I tweeted something of hers and she tweeted me back. And lo and behold, we were mutual fans of each other's work because I her work resonated so much with me because I felt like she sort of took the same kind of rigorous research approach that we try to take with all the the stuff that we do with the podcast into the work that she does, focusing uh, more closely on beauty. And so I invited her onto the show and we had a, a wonderful conversation and um, she has a book coming out. It won't be out for until 2014, I believe, or 2015. Um, but you should definitely follow her. She's at The Beheld. That's The underscore Beheld on Twitter. And you can read her work at The Beheld, which is the-beheld.com. And also, like I said, she's cross-posted over at The New Inquiry. But um, I don't know, Caroline, you think we should just go ahead and roll this conversation? Let's roll it. Let's Let's roll it. So without further ado, here is a chat about beauty with beauty expert, and I'm going to call her a scholar, Autumn Whitefield Madrano. Hope you enjoy. Well, to get started, for listeners who are not familiar with The Beheld, it's a beauty blog, but it's so much more than a beauty blog. How do you describe The Beheld to people? The way that I usually describe my work at the Beheld is I say, well, I write a beauty blog, but it's not a blog about products or reviews. It's sort of a, a sociological take on beauty. And depending on where the person goes from there, I'll you know, say, well, you know, it's a feminist perspective, but not necessarily one sort of strict you know, school of feminism. Um, it incorporates my personal experience of beauty, interviews with women who have sort of unusual experiences of beauty. Um, Really, the goal, my goal of the Beheld is just to kind of be a part of the conversation that we're sort of having nationally about women and 
you know, I feel like this is sort of one one way that I can contribute to this sort of myriad uh, conversations that have been happening the past few years about sort of where are we now with, with really women's place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on your blog, you say that uh, one of the inspirations for starting The Beheld was that a friend told you to either think less about beauty or write more about it, which, first of all, props to a very straightforward friend. We all need them. Um, but what about beauty fed your interest so much? Like, why were you why were you thinking and talking about it so much, aside from kind of the inherent fact of, you know, being a woman and we tend to maybe think about those things a little bit more? Well, I think part of it is, you know, just the function of beauty itself, not just being a woman and sort of having these social expectations, but I've heard one definition of beauty as being, you know, I know that something is beautiful when I want to continue to look at it. And so, you know, fascination and beauty go hand in hand. So on one, you know, on one hand, I'm sort of just like anyone else, just beauty is fascinating to me. But as far as really sort of thinking critically about beauty, the first time I can remember was um, I was 14 years old, and I was doing a uh, school report about eating disorders. And as a part of my um, study, I guess you could call it, I decided to survey the girls in my class and see how they felt about their bodies. And sure enough, most of the girls said that they you know, thought they were too fat and needed to lose weight. This was in 1990 or so. And I noticed two things. The first thing was that... Most of the women, most of the girls who said that they actually felt fine about their bodies were athletes. And I thought that was interesting. I wasn't athletic myself. So I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. It sort of got me thinking about, okay, so maybe there's something women, girls can actually do to sort of feel better about themselves. But the thing that really got me going was I approached one of the girls in our class, and she was probably one of the bigger girls in our class. She wasn't obese or anything, but, you know, she's what you might call big-boned. And I asked her, and she said, oh, I feel fine. You know, my body's fine as it is. Just like, you know, I'd ask her about the weather or something. And that just blew my mind. I was so intrigued by hearing this girl who, by sort of the social expectations, quote-unquote, should feel like she had to have to lose weight, just say, no, whatever, it's fine. And that was the first time I'd really listened to someone else's experience, inner experience about appearance. And I thought it made me consider what other sort of messages I was getting and what messages I wasn't hearing. And um, I guess that sort of launched a a lifelong project, even though I've only been blogging for a couple of years. Okay. Um, Well, kind of speaking of... uh you know, girls, the fact that the, this initial thought process was, you know, sparked when you were younger. Um, you, you did mention in one of the beauty roundups that you do every week on The Beheld uh, that one of the things you'll be looking into for a book that you are now working on is how the Internet has changed how we take in imagery. And so I, I wondered if you could kind of expound on that a little bit on how, how you think it's changed and um, especially for you know for younger girls who are growing up with the internet and constant self presentation on social media, all of these different forces that are maybe affecting our thoughts about beauty and our you know like what we consider beautiful. Well, one of the biggest things that I think the internet has changed about the way we perceive beauty is n- not even so much about beauty, but the way that we perceive images. Because we're creating so many of our own images now. I mean, we see, we tend to see images as interactive. They're sort of starting points. You know, there was a funny epi- moment in an episode of Mad Men on Sunday night, and by Monday morning, there are all, all these 
GIF or GIF, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, um, of, of that moment and people sort of making it their own little meme. And so we, we transform images into things for our own purposes. We're always re- recontextualizing images, which I think is really something that before you had to work a lot harder at. Now anyone with you know the most basic computer knowledge can create their own images. And something that goes hand in hand with that is that I think we are better understanding what goes into creating in the images. Um, I don't necessarily think that just knowing the images are retouched is enough for most women or girls or anyone to, to sort of be able to dismiss it as, oh, well, nobody really looks like that. I think the images you know, have a pretty particular hold in our minds, even if we know that it's been manipulated. But I think that we're better understanding the role of fantasy that comes into these images now, in part because you know we, we've seen a lot of the behind-the-scenes work going on with images. And I think, you know, another aspect of, the, of um, the Internet and how it's changing how we're looking at beauty and images is social media. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of the selfie, which is sort of, you know, these self-portraits that mm-hmm. so many people have on their Facebook <laughs> pages or whatever. You hold the camera up and you make a little face and you take a picture. I mean, anyone who's ever tried to take a self-portrait knows that the one that winds up going on your Facebook page is one is the one that images in, in that in that sense of sort of selecting. So I think that we're very aware of how many faces each of us really has. And I wonder how that affects girls. And I, I wonder specifically if they're sort of putting it together that, okay, wait, if it takes me 20 times and the sort of unnatural face pose to come up with a portrait that I like, that must be true of everyone else. And I haven't talked to enough young women to really say how much um, the Internet has sort of change them on the whole as compared to my generation. I'm, I'm 36 now. Um, I would, And I, I really should be talking to young women, and I intend to for the book, because they have this really sophisticated knowledge of photo manipulation and the, you know, the sort of background of you know, portrait sharing and that sort of thing. But I don't know which way it's going to turn. I mean, it could be that they begin to see images as you know, just being in a realm of fantasy without it being anything more. Or maybe they'll see it as being aspirational, but um, as sort of I grew up thinking of images as being, but maybe they'll see it as being something that's more doable through their own means. Like, okay, there's this hair tutorial that I can click on on YouTube, and now I can make my hair look just like that. And they really can in a way that we couldn't, you know, <laughs> struggling to the pages of 17, trying to create this elaborate hairstyle that didn't really work. Um, so I'm really I'm curious to see how it's going to go with young women. Something that I'm really curious about is I'm wondering how know how this sort of targeted internet marketing is going to influence teen girls and their spending habits. I mean, when I was growing up, it was like, well, whatever Seventeen magazine said might be cool or whatever was at Kmart. That was kind of it. <laughs> so I'm picturing this 11 year old girl doing this photo search for I don't know. You know, how, how do you shave your underarms? And then she's having like 12 products advertised to her, directly to her, directly to what she was searching for, for weeks on end. And I'm wondering how that's going to, if they're going to, you know, become more cynical about advertising or if they're going to be more vulnerable to it because it really is targeted just to them and exactly what they're looking for. So um, that could go either way as well. 
Yeah, it seems like it's such a, a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you know, like you were talking about, young girls growing up today are so savvy in terms of the tools they can use for self-presentation. And like, I mean, a 12-year-old can probably get along better on Photoshop than I can at this point. And um, there's that and also just the, the greater awareness of knowing, like you said, like the manipulation that goes into a lot of the you know, modeling images that we see, but then at the same time, you know, it's the negative side of things like the proliferation of thinspo and how all of that is just like feeding into the same cycles. But then you also have, you know, all of these quirkier beauty blogs that are popping up that, you know, offer girls an appreciation, you know, outside of norms. I don't know. It's such a, it's such a fascinating mixed bag that it seems like, I don't know. Unfortunately, it might take some time as they, this first generation to really age with the internet from cradle to grave, I guess, um, to see how it's going to shake out. Because I hadn't thought about that aspect of the, on top of all of that, the targeted advertising. Yeah, I only started thinking about that recently. I, I was looking for a bra, and all of a sudden I was on com and all these bras were popping up, and I was like, "What?" And I'm I'm pretty naive about this stuff, so I was like, "How did they know?" <laughs> and, you know. Then I was like, "Oh wait, cookies. That's what cookies are all about." Um, but it, it, I feel like just in the past year, it's been happening more and more. Like now, all my websites still have bras all over them. I don't feel like I look for bras that often, but apparently I do. Can I rant for a sec, please? Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer... Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Well, speaking of 
advertising. Um, let's talk about Dove's Real Beauty campaign because with the the composite sketch series that they put out recently it went viral, and at first it was it was so fascinating to watch the internet feedback from it because at first it was oh look at this really clever you know poignant portrayal of how women see themselves and perceive their own beauty and then as the the dust settled a little bit it was like wait a minute there's some deeper stuff going on here that might not be um so wonderful for women um so i kind of wanted to to get your thoughts on whether or not companies or businesses, advertisers have kind of busted the beauty myth in a way. If, you know, they're kind of like in on it and are now using it against us, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's like they sort of cracked this code <laughs> that, that, um, that is the sentiment that has been out there. Because women have been dissatisfied for quite some time with the way that we've been portrayed, you know, specifically through advertising, but in all aspects of the media. Um, there's been a long tradition of vocal sort of resistance and pointing out, hey, that's not cool, I don't like that, women, you know, come in all shapes and sizes and colors, etc. And, yeah, it was kind of like Dove hacked, <laughs> hacked that dissatisfaction. And they did a, they did a large study, um, I think, I guess in 2004, which is when the campaign began. And it was a good study, it was really, um, it was actually really fascinating to look at the numbers of it. But what I think that they've done by sort of leveraging the ideas of the beauty myth for their own purposes is, I mean, they're really using the beauty myth against women just like traditional advertising is. You know, the message might be better. The message might leave you feeling smiling and happy and proud or, you know, emotional and teary. But, you know, there's a, there's a somewhat more positive response that we get to the Dove ads than we get to something like, oh, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. But the same idea of women not liking how they look is being used against women. And I guess I just find that sort of inherently problematic. But that said, you know, I heard from a lot of readers who really responded positively to that campaign. They were saying, yeah, yeah, I see your point on this intellectual level, but come on, this is so much better than what we're getting. In fact, my, my mom actually sort of wrote me a scolding email, like, you didn't grow up with the images I grew up with. Like, you, you don't know how easy you have it. And I am so thankful that this campaign is out there. So... You know, I personally am cynical about it, but I'm sort of cynical about all advertising because it, you know, has this very, you know, the goal is to sell us stuff and nothing more. Um, but I guess, I mean, in some ways they are a sign of progress. Not so much that the content of the ads is progressive, because I don't really think it is, but they're responding to their consumers. They're responding to critics, and I think that that's important. I mean, I think it's just, just like you pointed out, just as intriguing of the fact that this video went viral is the fact that, that the resistance to it went viral. You know, someone on Tumblr wrote a really eloquent response about, you know, the cyberism and sort of, you know, the, the domination of white women in it. You know, just pretty pretty good points. And that went viral, too. And I think that that's so encouraging that just as quick as the beauty industry is sort of turning the beauty myth around on us in a totally different way, people are saying, wait, no, hold on a second. And people are paying attention to that. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it seems like, and maybe it's maybe it's a byproduct of the internet and just being connected on you know social media, but it does seem like we're having conversations about beauty in ways and in deeper ways maybe than we ever have before. It's kind of um, it's interesting just how much 
thought we are, you know, really collectively having towards representations of beauty that we, you know, these kinds of things can go viral. So kind of along the lines, too, of the, the Dove Real Beauty campaign, it reminded me of the uh, the recent backlash against the CEO of Abercrombie & Fitch talking about how, you know, saying very nasty things about the kinds of customers that he didn't want um, in, in his clothes. And uh, so kind of on the upside, I guess, for... Um, just like the reaction against that and then also things like Dove Real Beauty where, you know, you see women of more shapes and sizes at least. Do you think that possibly we're at least broadening our representation of beauty? I think what we are beginning to see is people sort of putting it together that, oh, wait a second, the people that I find attractive in real life aren't just this one mold. I think there's... I, I hate to say reality kind of television has done anything positive for our society, but maybe maybe there is something to be said to that. I, I don't know, and that that's sort of an interesting case. But anyway, um, I think what we're seeing is maybe it's the connection between the internet and you know other forms of media. Yeah, that people are sort of recognizing that they're not weird for finding something other than the mainstream beauty appealing. Um, well, as the you know the beauty industry continues expanding its reach into the male market, do you think that we would ever see a Dove Real Beauty esque campaign for male targeted cosmetics? Say, I mean, do you think it'll ever kind of get to that point with uh, the the expansion of male beauty? Dove-like campaign would work on them because it would go against the very idea of this myth that's out there. I don't think that we see men as being passive enough as consumers to sort of make that tactic work. Um, I don't think that we would ever, anytime soon certainly, be at the point where we would sort of grant men the tenderness that we grant women as far as um, their vulnerability surrounding their looks. And I don't think that's a positive thing, but that said, maybe, you know, men are still maybe one step ahead of the game. I don't know. I really don't know. So talking more broadly about um, women and beauty and feminism, because I feel like the intersection of beauty and feminism can be <laughs> sometimes a little bit confounding. Um, uh, in one of your thoughts on a word post that you did, uh, you brought up something that has, has irked me as well, and it's how the New York Times always shoves its women-focused articles in the style section. And, um, I mean, do you think that it does a disservice to women and 
gender equity at large to always cluster women so closely to beauty. I mean, it, it just it, it's it's the New York Times, but it's so many other places as well. Where if you want to find something, the content, the articles, reports about women, it's always in a beauty or style section. Exactly, and I think that the problematic word here is always. Um, and of course, it's not always there are stories about women and general intersections as well. But the balance is way off. Um, in some ways, I, I really actually like seeing sort of real news about women in the style section. I almost feel like it's sort of a covert way of reaching out to women because women do make up the majority of readers of the sort of soft news sections. And so I sort of like the idea of sort of communicating to women about important issues in a sort of almost backhanded or subtle, a subtler way and saying, you know, this news, we're trying to reach you. And I, I sort of, I actually really appreciate that. I mean, I worked in women's magazines for 10 years and that was sort of one of my reasons. I was very conflicted about my work during my time there, but that was one reason that I stayed, was that I, I liked the idea of women who otherwise wouldn't be getting this sort of information, getting it even if it was sort of coded with a lot of stuff that I, you know, could care less about. Um, but that said, yeah, it, it happens so often. Like, actually, one of my blog is syndicated through a website called The New Inquiry, which is a journal of criticism, and... It's not a quote-unquote woman's site, but it happens to be largely run by women. It's founded by three women, about half the staff are women. Um, and the New York Times profiled them and put them in the, in the style section. And then a year later, um, a magazine that has somewhat similar content called Jacobin, which is a great magazine and it wasn't their fault, but they were published in the book section. They're, they're the write-up and went in the book section. It was like, wait a second, we're the same kind of magazine. We're putting these ideas out there. We're political, we're critical, and yet the guys got the legitimate section. And that was sort of a, well, what are you going to do sort of thing. Um, we were thrilled to be getting the publicity and sort of wish that it hadn't come at, I don't want to say the, at the expense of being taken seriously because we were taken more seriously after that, but it was just sort of a shame, I guess, overall. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then kind of more directly than talking about the issue of feminism, I mean, do you think that beauty culture is sort of at a, directly at odds with it? Like how, how, do, how do the two get along? Well, I think that if you go by the idea that feminism is, I think it was Rebecca West who said that feminism is a radical notion that women are people, then feminism is not at odds with beauty culture. Uh, because, you know, there's sort of this, there's this long human history of self-adornment and wanting to look better. And that's, you know, it's been true across, you know, basically as long as humans have been around. So, you know, on sort of a base level, is beauty culture at, at odds with feminism? No. But that said, the beauty industry has a long history of taking an anti-feminist tack, sort of pitting women against, against each other, again, you know, don't hate me because I'm beautiful, or encouraging women to sort of treat their looks as, you know, their personal capital. And certainly beauty culture can be used for anti-feminist means. And, that, you know, most importantly, as was written about in The Beauty Myth, beauty can sort of turn into this enormous siphon of women's energies, and that kind of keeps us in this, you know, varying degree of oppression. Um, I, I guess all that said, I mean, clearly I, I am a feminist, and I write almost exclusively about beauty on the Behold. And so I, I can't see the two of it being completely at odds. And I, I sort of had a hard time really reconciling this in my mind, even though I was doing this work and writing about it and believing about it, 
And then I read something that one of my colleagues wrote, um, Sally McGraw, who, who writes um, Already Pretty. And she said, I want to arm you with confidence in your body and your style so you can stop worrying about your outward presentation and focus on what's important. And I, I love that because I think that in, our looks can become a distraction to us. They can be a source of celebration, of course, too, but they can also be a distraction. I mean, we've all had that moment when we're in an interview or something and we're like, oh, my gosh, my lipstick's weird, my lipstick's smeared, or, you know, my hair looks weird, <laughs> or all, any of those sort of things. And that kind of takes away from our ability to be in the moment and to do the most effective work that we can for things that are ultimately more important than beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's almost like I wonder if there's a self-check that we can do of, of some line of like, okay, well now, you know, a line between this is an okay amount of time to con- consider my outward appearance and this is when it's becoming too much. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's sort of a, you know, quick litmus test that we can do to find out sort of what falls in line with our ideals and what doesn't. Because it's easy to take anything and be like, well, I'm doing it for me. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of women, myself included, say, well, I'm doing, you know, this particular beauty work that is very pleasant or whatever. I'm doing this for me, and that sort of makes it okay. And I guess what I would challenge women to do is to take it away from themselves for a while. Or conversely, to add it on. I mean, I did, um, this has been written about it way too much in the media, by, for, for, by my opinion, but um, I did a mirror fast uh, where I didn't look in the mirror for a month. And the point wasn't to feel better about my looks or something. The point was to see what investment I was actually making in the mirror. And I learned a lot about that by not letting myself look at myself in the mirror for a month. And it sort of changed the way that I conceive of the mirror and the way that I understand my reflection. So I would say, you know, if you're sort of on the edge about something like, gosh, I'm spending a lot of time or money or energy on this thing, sort of take it away from yourself. And conversely, there's um, a blogger called uh, Courtney who writes a blog called Those Graces, and she sort of added all in beauty work for herself. She did something called the Red Lipstick Project, where every day for a month she wore red lipstick, which for someone who wears red lipstick all the time doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But like her, whenever I wear lipstick, specifically red lipstick, I'm really aware of how I look. I'm really aware that I'm sort of saying, look at me, pay attention to me. And that can be sort of intimidating. And she sort of jumped outside of her comfort zone by doing that. So, I mean, it can really work either way in that sense. I I would classify that experiment as something that could be feminist depending on her motivation. So, you know, that's the closest thing I could think of for for sort of a, you know, a guide to women. When you did the mirror fest, did you afterwards see yourself differently, notice different things about your face or kind of how you felt when you looked in the mirror? I, you know, the the thing that I noticed was that I had not really been seeing the way that I looked. I had been either seeing the way that I felt or been seeing some sort of projection of what I wanted to see or what I feared seeing. Um... In fact, during the experiment, at one point, I was on an elevator, and the elevator doors opened up, and right in front of me was a mirror, and I, you know, saw, I saw myself, and I looked away immediately. The first thing, in that split second before I looked away, I was like, wow, I look older than I thought, and not in a bad way, not like, a, oh my gosh, I'm so wrinkly sort of thing, but I saw a woman who looked 35 years old. And I sort of hadn't seen a 35-year-old woman in a mirror before, because I generally knew when there was going to be a mirror. And so I would sort of like, there's a little part of my brain that would tell myself to expect something a little softer, you know, 
something without the wrinkles that I'd acquired or the, you know, the, the few gray hairs I have or whatever. And so I think after the mirror fast, I sort of had to realize that, you know, what, what I'm seeing isn't necessarily what's there. And that's not, you know, I still look in the mirror and probably see something different than what the rest of the world sees. But um, it was sort of a big clue to me that, um, that the two are not necessarily the same thing. Um, something that I've seen some bloggers write about um, is sort of rendering beauty as something that is a place of true joy and maybe experimentation or fantasy or play. And I've never really worn makeup in that way. I, I tend to just sort of wear my little blush and concealer or whatever. But I have some friends who do these wild things with eyeliner or eyeshadow. And I just, I look at that and like that just seems so liberating, really. I mean, just, just talk about, you know, sort of forming your own identity, a very distinct identity. I think that there's a lot of room in there for sort of exploration. And exploration and awareness is, can be a part of sort of a feminist ethos. I think sometimes that we want to pit beauty culture and feminism against each other because it sort of goes against the idea of what non-feminists think feminism is about. I know plenty of feminists are conflicted about their own beauty work, myself included, but I hear it more from people who wouldn't use the F word to describe themselves. And it sort of furthers the idea that there's this perfect feminist out there who, like, you know, makes menstrual art, only shops at well-known grocery stores or whatever. Um, like, I don't think it's the end of the world if you do some beauty work that isn't feminist. I mean, I recently, this might be TMI, but I recently discovered the Brazilian Bikini Wax, and I wouldn't call it anti I'll be writing about that soon. I wouldn't call it anti-feminist. But for me to sort of be like, well, this is a feminist act, would, you know, I'd have to do some crazy, you know, back bends to make that work. So, yeah, it's not feminist by any means, but does that make me somehow less committed to my politics? Like, I, I, I wouldn't say that it does. So... Yeah. <laughs> and that's such a good point. I mean, the whole concept of, or dismantling at least, the concept of a perfect feminist, because it, like you said, it really doesn't exist. And if, I don't know, I feel like there would be something massively wrong with the entire philosophy if how my face looked and the amount of cosmetics on it determined my level of commitment to gender equality. Um, so, yeah, I'm really I'm glad that you brought that up. Well, in a, a compelling post about weight think um, over at the blog, what would Phoebe do that you link to in a post? Um, Phoebe wrote, quote, the goal shouldn't be for all women to look in the mirror and see beautiful. It's for beautiful not to be the main important quality in most women's lives, not even most young women. And that, that quote really struck me, and I, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you agreed with that and sort of the uh, thinking of beauty in, in this, this larger sense. Yeah, I, I think Phoebe was absolutely spot on with that. Um, beauty absolutely shouldn't be the most important quality for anyone, not even people who are beautiful for a living. I mean, like, I make my living through words, but I don't consider, you know, my wordsmithing abilities to be my most important quality as a human being. Um, but that said, I think, you know, I would make the distinction, and, and I think Phoebe would agree, but I, I don't want to speak for her, that to pretend that beauty doesn't have a place in the realm of big, important things in our life isn't necessarily helpful either because, I mean, most of us do want to be considered beautiful in some way. So there's something about physical beauty that does drive us, and I don't want to ever dismiss that. I don't think Phoebe is doing that, is trying to dismiss it. Um, 
that I, you know, I worry sometimes about saying, well, beauty, beauty shouldn't be considered, you know, important. It should not be considered the most important quality. But to say it shouldn't be considered important either is sort of dismissive of human history, specifically of women's history. I mean, try telling a 13-year-old girl that beauty isn't important. Like, she knows, she knows better. <laughs> and you'd be, you'd be essentially lying to her if you said that it wasn't important. Yeah, sorry, I just, I got, uh, started thinking about, um, that very fact of the idea of someone when I was 13 telling me that, that being pretty didn't matter at all and I would laugh in their face. Even in adulthood, there are so many studies that demonstrate that, you know, whether or not we agree with all of the messages perhaps that the beauty industry might direct our way in order to sell products from time to time, beauty in and of itself does make a difference in terms of just our basic self-presentation and all of the messages that are attached to that in terms of how we present ourselves to the world, levels of confidence, competence. Um, so I feel like it's, you know, it's not something that we should necessarily have to escape as women, but maybe, maybe the goal is for women to, uh, learn how to live with it more amicably <laughs> instead of just always fighting against it somehow. Um, exactly. Right now it's a really, it can be a really fraught relationship right now. And I would say if, if there was a goal that I would have in mind, it's for that relationship to not be full of tension and instead be either sort of a neutral place of self-maintenance. You know, I don't think most of the thing, things twice about, you know, showering or whatever. So, you know, it could go more, to, more in that direction or to see it as a place of beauty and joy and pleasure in our lives. You know, and that's going to vary from person to person. Speaking, though, of, uh, you know, telling a 13-year-old girl that, that beauty doesn't matter, um, if you could go back and tell your younger self anything about beauty all of the wisdom that you have now gleaned what would you what would you tell a young girl in terms of sort of how to how to live in the world and deal with this you know the issue of beauty and and all of that you know there's actually two sort of sides to that coin um on one hand, I think I would just like to tell her nobody is paying nearly as much attention to the way that you look as you are. You know, I sort of went through, I mean, you know, I'm still a very self-conscious person, and I think I sort of went through life thinking that everyone saw every little flaw on me and was, you know, disgusted by it or whatever, not realizing how, I mean, really self-involved that was. Um, so I'd like to sort of tell the 13-year-old me that. But in some ways, I'd also sort of like... My 13, parts of my 13-year-old self to sort of have stayed alive within me throughout the rest of my teens and my 20s. Um, like, I'm thinking of this, I read, I read about this in my blog some time ago. When I was 12 years old, I wanted to enter the 17 modeling contest. It's like, you know, and enter and you could win, you know, you could have your picture on the cover of 17. And I was like, you know, most 12-year-olds were awkward looking, and I, I was certainly no exception. Um, but I really thought I would win this thing. I and mean, I really was just like, well, of course I'm going to win. I didn't, I wouldn't dare tell anyone that. But there was this part of me that really just looked in the mirror and thought what I, what was there was sensational, you know? And it's funny looking at pictures of myself as 12. Like I was, I was really funny looking. But there was a part, there was this sort of pride in myself that was vibrant and alive that lived alongside that exquisite self-consciousness. 
and alongside, you know, the hours I would spend in front of the mirror sort of trying to fix everything that I thought was wrong. I mean, those, those sides of myself coexisted pretty strongly at that age. And I think I learned to sort of tamp down that sort of prideful, enthusiastic part of myself. And I guess I kind of wish that I had kept that part of myself a little more alive. You know, temporary perhaps. I certainly, you know, wouldn't want to try to make it as a model or anything. And trust me, that would not have gone well. Um, but there was something sort of, I look back on that with this sort of like sad fondness for that girl who, who saw that in herself. Mm-hmm. And I wish that she had sort of stayed alive for longer. Well, I can only imagine hearing that you know, about that self-confidence that you had at such a young age that it must have been influenced in some part perhaps by you know older women in your life such as your mom um and you know your mom did a guest post for the beheld on mother's day and also since this is stuff mom never told you um <laughs> in the reverse of that what did what did your mom teach you about about beauty as you were growing up this will sound like it's mean-spirited, but it's not. She's taught me absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that was sort of deliberate on her part. Um, I think she was really resistant. She didn't want any part of my self-esteem to, to be invested in my looks. And that was a really strong, you know, wise choice for her to make. And so, to, so her sort of tactic was to not really talk about it. I mean, she talked about, you know, she pointed out unrealistic images to me. Like, I remember... We came up with the term trick photography to talk about photo retouching. You know, so she'd see, you know, I'd see a billboard and say, ooh, that's me. And she'd say, well, you know what that is? And I'd say trick photography. So, you know, I was five years old and talking about this. So that was, that was neat. But that said, beauty was important. It was a part of my life. It was a part of everyone's life. And by sort of never addressing it directly, I was sort of left to come up, my own, up with my own sort of weird perspective, which is probably why I thought I could enter and win the 17 modeling contest, for example. Um, and so I don't want to fault my mother for that, certainly, because, you know, she, she had a pretty strong, she had a very consistent perspective throughout my life, and that's, you know, I appreciate that enormously. But um, there weren't really a lot of direct messages about beauty. The message I got was that it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. But, you know, I sort of knew better as well. Mm-hmm. Sounds like she definitely uh, did a did a great job with all of that. <laughs> um, well, just to wrap up this conversation, um, the beheld is now on its way into book form. Is that the right way to to pose it? Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> I'll be definitely. Um, I, yes, I'm, publish- I'm writing a book. It'll be published by Simon and Schuster in the spring of 2015, and it will deal with many of the themes that I write about on my blog. But my blog is sort of, is skewed a little academic sometimes, and it's definitely explicitly feminist. And the book will be a little bit more general. I mean, it'll still appeal to analytic types. And, I mean, I'm a feminist, so it's going to be from a feminist perspective. But I'm really writing it for the reader who might not identify herself or himself as a feminist, but is sort of looking to develop their own nuanced thinking in the way that beauty plays out in their own lives. So, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. That's sort of the, the big project going on. I'm really excited for it. was completely blown away and full of warm and fuzzy feelings after listening to that interview because I think Autumn is fantastic. I think your conversation with her was great, Kristen. And I, for one, you know, she talks about re-examining beauty and, and, and beauty in our culture. I 
I'm grateful that she is one of the people who is leading that discussion and that reexamination. Absolutely. I, I hadn't realized that the beauty myth came out in 1991. And think about how much has changed in our beauty culture, how we consume it, uh, how it's constantly there uh, with the Internet, with advertising, um, and even just the tactics of beauty advertising like we talked about. So I am fully confident that uh, Autumn will maybe offer us a, a really good sort of update, perhaps, on the beauty myth. So I can't wait to see what she does with that. But again, you should definitely check out her website, The Beheld. It's the-beheld.com. Follow her on Twitter at the underscore beheld. Um, and yeah, thanks to Autumn for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciated her her insights and knowledge and for just being a really cool woman. Yeah, we love cool women. We do love cool women. And for anyone who has any feedback, any thoughts on beauty, anything that we were talking about, um, I'll also be curious to hear if anyone has any response about the, especially about the, the Dove Real Beauty campaign and sort of that idea of whether marketers have sort of taken the beauty myth and turned it against us a little bit. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Momstuffadiscovery.com is our email address. You can tweet us as well at momstuffpodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share when we get right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to our letters. We got a couple of notes here about our episode on Barbara Walters, who is retiring soon. And I, you know what? I bet Barbara Walters would have a lot to say about beauty. I bet she would. Because we talked about in that episode about how she was surprised when she got tapped for the desk job on the Today Show. Because before that, it had only been models. Right. And she wasn't a model. (laughs) What do you know? Uh, So, Wayne wrote in saying, Ladies, I appreciate the topics that you discuss. Thank you, Wayne. As a person in business, I have found value in both episodes on Martha Stewart and Barbara Walters that transcend gender. It provides a clear precedent on making the most of your career. They become characters of themselves and their real contributions are less frequently heard of. Now that I'm informed, I respect their contributions. And he offers a side note question. Are those Jack Threads ads because you have that many fellas listening? Wayne, we do have a number of guys listening. We do. I'd say about, what, a quarter of our audience, a third of our audience are fellows just like you, Wayne. But you know why we have those Jack Threads ads? It's because, uh, like Jack Threads, we agree that paying full price is for suckers. Okay, I have one here from uh, Mariana. She says that, uh, I just finished the Barbara Walters podcast. Good job, ladies. Thank you. Thanks. She says, I really liked it. I haven't seen the view since Lisa Lang and Meredith Vieira left the show. I tried watching it not too long ago and I found Barbara was still informative. Very good. And entertaining, but not enough to compensate for irrational ramblings of Elizabeth Hasselbeck and the tragically unfunny comedy of Whoopi and Joy Behar. Sorry, she says. I have no idea who might replace Barbara, but other than Ann Curry or Terry Gross, I'm not giving the show a second chance. In a perfect world, Barbara's seat would be filled by Mindy Kaling with co-hosts Danica McKellar, Kristen and Caroline, hey, and most importantly, Julie Douglas from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, because we need women capable of discussing science on TV. I would watch that show. I'm just going to say I'd <laughs> watch you'd that be show on it. because Mindy Kaling would be my boss. And I'd love all my co-hosts. Right. So, Mindy, if you're listening, girl, make it happen. I know you can. <laughs> um, thanks to everybody, though, who has written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or send us a Facebook message. You can also follow us on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And, of course, you can also watch us now. We are on YouTube, coming at you four times a week. So you can find us at YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. And don't forget to be kind and subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 